0: To the show. This is Brett and you are tuned in to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. Um, this particular episode, as promised, uh, this is one of our episodes um, that is going to revolve largely around the pandemic, um, current events, You know what is going on with all of that. And uh, you know we'll get to my guest in, in just a minute. I thought pretty long and hard about what I want to say um, before this as, as the intro, and honestly, everything is changing so fast, you know, in less than one year, we've gone from two weeks to flatten the curve, to talks of mandatory vaccinations with an experimental vaccine, okay, Canada now, at time of recording, Health Canada has just approved the uh, Pfizer vaccine, okay, which is an mRNA vaccine, Um, The UK has literally just started its mass immunization uh, program. Of course, two people suffered anaphylactic uh, shocks on day one. Um, Four people in the trials uh, came down with Bell's palsy. Of course, the FDA denies that. And the list goes on and on and on. But why am I saying all of that? I'm saying it because there doesn't appear to be any end in sight, And as you're going to hear in the beginning of this particular episode, um, the the, the cases keep going up, right? The recovery keeps going up, and the deaths flatlined. Okay, so you can check out the show notes, um, real-time statistics. I'm going to put the exact link down there um, that I opened the segment up with with uh, with Susan. So you can go down there right now. Obviously, the numbers are going to be different because we recorded this a week or two ago. Um, and and let's not even talk about faulty PCR testing, which I'm covering in a, in a different episode. Let's not even talk about the classification of, of debts. Let's not even talk about the fact that Despite all of the measures that are being put in place, right? We've had mandatory masks for how many months now? We've had social distancing for how many months now? We've shuttered businesses. We've destroyed people's livelihoods. And what's happening? The cases keep going up, right? They keep going up and up and up and up. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, on mainstream news, right? CTV, Canadian, like, major broadcasting company here in Canada, On the evening news, they said 98.5% of deaths in Canada were in long-term care homes. So those are nursing homes, 98.5%. What that equates to, when you look at the figures, and this is a rough number because everything is changing every day, is you are talking about a little bit over 600 people in the whole country that have died outside of long-term care homes with COVID-related issues, right, or died with COVID, okay, so you get tested with a faulty PCR test, you test positive, okay, and then you go and get hit by a bus, and on your death certificate is COVID, okay, I'm not going to bog us down and get into the weeds with all of that, suffice to say that more and more people are waking up to the reality that things are not adding up, something is not adding up, and why are we rolling out a vaccine here. We've actually now hired the military. We've hired Rick Hillier, which is a former general for the military. This is now a military operation. And yes, people will say, "Oh, but we want to get it into rural areas. We want to get it." You know, it's it's a logistical issue. Sure, for now, if you want to believe that, that's great. But let's see how it all rolls out, and let's see how time uh, wears on this. Okay. And of course, who do they want to um, support first and foremost? Right, the elderly. Okay, so we want to support the elderly, we want to support indigenous people, we want to, we want to get um, people of color, right, these are all the people that need to get the shot first. Of course, frontline healthcare workers, who many of them are now rejecting this, right, the nurses union in Canada is saying that they don't want to subject their nurses to mandatory shots so they can work. But the bottom line is all of this, right? So I'm doing other episodes. I've got Dr. Tom Cowan and Sally Fallon coming on the show. Um, I've got someone from Children's Health Defense. We're going to dig into the whole vaccine situation. Um, So I'm not going to labor over that for now. But I want you to realize, and let's just segue here into the topic of the day here. I want you to realize that the more that we comply, the more that we just keep doing what we're doing, right? The cases keep going up. Right, everything's getting worse and worse and worse. So clearly what we're doing is not actually working by by the the government and the powers that be, by their own logical reasoning and by their own narrative, this is not working. Period. Okay, it's not working. Okay, forget about deaths, forget about all of that. So what that means is that, you know, and, and Fauci has said this, right? So after the vaccine arrives, we will still have to wear masks, we will still have to social distance, we will still have to do all of these things. So you have to start questioning what are the real motives here, right? I'm going to stop myself right there, okay? Just I want you to think about that. What are the real motives here? What is the end game? All right, Part of the end game is, of course, mass vaccination, okay? And I've been saying that before the pandemic even, okay? But now we're faced with the situation where what do we do? Okay, what do we do as individuals? Do you take your mask off? Do you stand up, right? Do you risk being Arrested or persecuted or ostracized by your community? Okay, what do you do? Because what's going on now is people are waking up and they're going, Wow, the jig is up, right? Something's not right here. But what do I now do? What can I do about this? Because I feel powerless, I feel helpless, right? Tune into my podcast with Jason Christoph. We talk all about that. Okay, that's coming up as well if you're listening to this um newly released. But my guest today is Susan Stanfield, and you'll hear her introduce herself in the beginning of this. And and one of the reasons why I've got Susan on the show is because she is fearless, right? She's been covering um, these types of things, and obviously this is unprecedented, but she's been covering uh, these types of issues for many years now. And she's created quite a movement out in Vancouver, in BC, right? She's a real leader, She's inspired a lot of people, she's got a great demeanor, she's got a great message um, and she's really taken this on in a way that I can see how thousands of people are now rallying around her to say, hey, you know what, I feel empowered. These are some tools and strategies that you can use. What happens if I go into a store, right? What? what how do I approach that matter? And I think that, you know, my goal with this is obviously we highlight some of the problems, but we also highlight some of the solutions. And, you know, I would encourage you to go and follow Susan to check out what she's doing. She's got some great campaigns. Um, She's actually an expert in communications, by the way. She's worked for some of the biggest um, corporations and companies in an advertising perspective in the world. So she understands messaging. She understands communication and how to present all of this. And I think that, at least my hope anyway, is that um, at the end of listening to this podcast, you perhaps feel a little bit more energized and empowered about what you can do. And one of the things that we talk about repeatedly is what are the actual consequences if I don't comply? Right? So if I just decide that I'm not going to wear my mask or I'm just going to walk into a store, what actually happens? Because there's, there's the law, right? I mean, you know, when you talk about something as a bylaw... Or, you know, is the bylaw enforceable? And if it is enforceable, then what are the consequences? Is it is it a, a year in jail? Is it five years in jail? Is it a $100,000 fine? What actually happens? And also, what actually happens if everyone decides to not comply? Okay, and for those of you who might be thinking, oh, well, you know, we're putting lives at risk and all this other stuff, let me remind you that there were no masks for the first half of this pandemic. Okay? There have been lockdown protests, there have been BLM protests, there have been all kinds of protests and gatherings around the world. And I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find outbreaks and deaths and cases exploding because of these gatherings. right? The one gathering I will point out is the uh, Toronto Freedom Rally, which has been going on now since, I think, the end of March, every weekend, every Saturday. Sometimes seven, 8,000 people out there. Okay, so the question is, if we don't comply, what what happens, right? And we've kind of touched on that in this episode. Um, The other thing that I'm just going to point out here, we kind of get into a little bit, is that we're now asking people who are employees of companies to enforce these bylaws, to enforce these rules. Your 18-year-old working at Starbucks now all of a sudden has to double up as a bouncer and a police officer, right? That's not what the kid signed up for okay this is now also happening which is unfair to the employees so anyway um you know thanks for indulging my rambling here and um i think that you're going to hopefully feel um positive at the end of this episode and uh, a little bit more empowered at least that's my goal anyway um so yeah i'm gonna leave it at that and uh, as always if you enjoy the show please support us Um, and literally it just takes a couple of clicks to subscribe you can leave us a review and, and that just helps the whole show all right, so let's jump into today's show with Susan Stanfield. Okay, so welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Um, today with me, I have Susan Stanfield joining me from BC, in Van- uh, B- Vancouver in BC, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Susan.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. So it's a privilege to be here.
0: Um, Yeah, and there's lots to talk about. Um, I mean, just things are are changing at breakneck speed um, every single day. There's new stuff happening. There's new developments. Uh, The the divide in the wedge is getting bigger and bigger. And um, yeah, so we're going to get into all of that stuff in just a second. What I want to do, though, before I get into that, is I just want to give us a snapshot of where we're at right now in Canada with the Canadian stats. Um, We are currently on day two of a full lockdown here in most of Southern Ontario. So that is Toronto and the surrounding GTA areas. Um, And then I'm kind of on the outskirts. So we're in what's called the red zone. Um, and you know, ours is sort of like a couple notches down, uh, but nonetheless, um, there is mass panic out there because the cases keep going up. Uh, the virus is spreading, everything is getting crazy and people are panicking like no one's business. So what I want to do for those of you watching on YouTube, you can actually just, I'm going to share my screen. And for those of you listening to the audio here, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of statistics so that we're all on the same page for today as of right now. So I'm actually on this website, uh, which is covidstatistics.org. This is a global website. If I scroll to the bottom here, they are actually using uh, government data. Okay, So this is an official source um, using government data. And all I want to do is look at the Canadian totals for today. Okay, so total cases, 346,000, total deaths, 11,676, and total recovered, we have a massive increase here today, which is green, very positive, uh, 286,495. But here's what I want to show you, and this is why I'm actually bringing this up. I'm not going to get bogged down with minutiae. This is the graph that I want everyone to see. This goes all the way back to March, and we can now track and look at all the cases, the recovered. And we can look at the total deaths. And what do you see when you look at this graph? Just gonna keep moving along here. What you're gonna see is all of the cases go up, all of the recovered go up along with it. And if you look at the statistics for the deaths, they are pretty well flatlined. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into anything else here with regards to classifications of deaths, faulty PCR testing, and all of that. You can listen to some of the other podcasts. What I want to do is, I actually want to jump in today and uh, speak with Susan here about what we can do. Okay. Because so many of you listening to this, watching this right now, you've been, especially if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that something's up. All right. The jig is up. People are getting restless, people are questioning things, there's more people that are getting out into the streets, there's more people that are defying government orders. This is where we're at right now. And if you're asking questions and you're wondering what you can do, or if you're thinking you're too afraid to do something, or even if you're not afraid and you just don't know what to do, uh, we're gonna bring Susan on here and uh, she has created quite the movement. Out there in BC, and I would say online as well, you've really made significant strides. Um, Your following has grown a lot, and I know that you do this for the greater good. I know that for you, this is not about um, you know building some kind of brand or building some kind of business, or that there's some kind of you know um, ulterior motive behind what you do. Much like the rest of us, you're actually doing this because you see what's coming down the pipeline, and you realize that this is a very serious issue. So, Susan. Thanks so much for joining me, and uh, perhaps I'm just going to hand it over to you and maybe give us a snapshot of your background and how did you get into all of this? Um, What were you doing before you really picked up on this, I think, in March already, right? You were one of the first people to kind of get out in the streets. Yeah. So.
1: Okay. Well, just quickly. So I grew up in Vancouver on the west side of Vancouver. I went to Queens. I have a double major in communications and politics. I've been a photographer and a human rights activist for 20, 30 years as a photographer. So I have lived, I'm 52. So I've lived most of my life kind of looking at documenting, understanding stories and society just kind of by accident. I just, that's who I am. So when this all began in March and April, I had a very unique combination of passion, skills and passion and education to know right away that this was organized public health fraud. And part of that is because I lived in Nairobi for five years, I've lived in Africa on and off for 20 years, and I lived around the public health world there near the United Nations, just by chance. Mm. And I saw that industry, and I saw how corrupt it was, and I was making TV shows and doing photography, and it just happened to be one of those sidecar things in my life. And then I, I was threatened to be jailed three years ago in Vancouver, more public health fraud, and I started looking into the legal aspect of how this industry works, particularly with pharmaceutical shareholders in a province like BC that I had come back to with my children. And so when the whole thing started unrolling, I was like, wow. I said to my husband, I said, it's going to be six months until Canada understands what's going on because I just happen to have a very unique special set of skills and education, the, the TV and the media, with the public health corruption. And that's exactly what happened in March and April. So I'm a a human rights activist. I've been doing this work for many years. It wasn't an option not to speak out. And I realized because I want the, the world back again. I want my rights back again. I want the playgrounds open. I don't want masking. I was gonna have to do something because as an activist, I knew that nobody could advocate for my rights. And I was going to have to advocate for others just to get the world back the way we wanted it. And it wasn't happening fast enough. People didn't understand. And people would not listen to me. That was my big wake-up call because the media and friends and everyone had always supported campaigns that I've designed. And this was the first time I didn't get any support. And the opposite happened. I was attacked viciously for months.
0: Yeah, which I think, uh, you know, many of us have fallen into that camp. Um, You know, people have listened to the show and who know me. um, Yeah, I mean, censorship for the last year now, um, actual official notification from Facebook that my page was getting throttled. Um, I'm pretty sure I've been shadow banned on Facebook as well. And the list goes on and on, you know, so um, censorship is alive and well but um you know i think uh, again coming back to something i said earlier um i just i want to drive the point home that people like us and people like yourself um this is not being done you know we hear we hear phrases like this um it's almost like psyops from the media right where people People like us in this camp are well-organized and well-funded. And there's, you know, all of these hidden agendas where there's some kind of gain for us. And and I honestly can't see the gain aside from, um, as you said, you know, regaining and retaining our our inalienable human rights um, as as free citizens. Uh, So um, I'm not sure where we want to start, but um, I guess, you know, where things are at right now versus where they were back in March What have you, you know, I'll just just sort of preamble a little bit here. What I noticed in March when this all came about was I kind of said, huh, you know what, when it first came, I was like, well, you know what, there's a virus, like there's something going on here. I'm going to stay home for a couple of weeks. I'm going to err on the side of caution. We don't know what we're dealing with. And it was literally a week later that I was like, no, there's something, something else is going on here. And I said, this is not going to be two weeks, two weeks to turn into five, five turned into 10. And I don't know, I think we're on day 250 something right now. Like, I don't even know. I've lost count. But what have you noticed some of the big changes have been um, since you first clued into this and where we're at now?
1: God, what a huge, big question. Well, let's see. Um, the focus is really on now the ethics of what governments and shareholders are doing now, and not so much about any virus. I think that conversation has really gone into the background. We live with, you know, 20 to 30 families of viruses constantly. So a lot of us never thought anything about that, right? And I'm a natural health mom. So, um, well, I think the focus now is people realizing that we have to rebuild the parts of society that allowed this to happen in the first place. So, okay, it was terrible, blah, blah, blah. We're all going to get better and you're from Africa, you know, right? Humanity, yeah. society survive. We will just survive. But the most important thing, the conversations I hear now are, okay, so what are we going to do now to make sure this doesn't happen again, right? Mm-hmm. How do we rebuild, say, a, a provincial government system? How do we change the public health offices to make sure these people never get on television again? How do we build preventative systems in our society and how we operate to keep all of the freedoms we want and to make sure the corruption can't penetrate it the way it yep. did that's the most important thing forget everything that just happened how do we make sure this doesn't happen again that's in my world and my circles that maybe not what's on the street
0: right but- and, and- yeah and sorry, if i if I can interrupt because I think I want to linger on that point a little bit, you know i was going to I was going to jump in and ask you, you know I think we're preaching to the choir here, but do you feel that out there in the larger space, you know I still feel like the virus conversation is occupying? Um, public discourse. And, and I feel that media is largely to blame, to be quite frank. Um, you know, politics and media are now in bed together, obviously. And I feel that the media is wholly complicit in, complicit in pushing a certain narrative. And it's a really a fear-based narrative. And I don't know about you, but when I look around, I still do see a lot of people that are fully co-opted by that. You, you know, and they haven't actually thought past the virus at all um but i don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah for sure so having the media background like with you um there's a, a term called the unfolding story so i've worked in the media i've worked for television series i've made ads and i've worked in public relations like i've done a little bit of everything i know a little bit about, about the whole network of it so an unfolding story is what the media wants because it's profitable and all of this stuff is always about money. And so like uh, Hurricane Katrina or Aceh, remember the hurricane or tornado in Aceh, um, hostage taking. You know, the unfolding story is the shareholders' wet dream, basically, because people are going to keep tuning in on the 24-hour news cycle. And you don't get much better than pandemic, right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> of course, yeah the jackpot. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I was very aware of that in the beginning, that this was going to be a gravy train. And Naomi Klein from Toronto talks about that, right? That the profit motive of disaster capitalism. So, um, but the the vi- the virus piece is interesting because I'm, I'm grateful that a lot of people are starting to understand what infectious diseases are and what natural health is. And most importantly, as you may agree, what natural immunity is. Mm-hmm. As that is our greatest power. It's our fastest, cheapest, most easily distributable... Tool is to build natural immunity in all populations. And people are having that conversation. You hear it in the bus bus stops, McDonald's, whatever. People are talking about that in a way because until now, infectious diseases wasn't a sexy topic. Now it is. And I think it's really cool, people learning what it is. Mm -hmm. So the media is playing its part, which is they're stringing this out for everything they can get. Absolutely. And I think they're afraid to drop that virus story because then if we don't talk about the virus anymore, then we're just going to be ending up talking about the damage and the crime. And they can't afford to because they've been so complicit for so many months. How can they not talk about the virus?
0: Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, um, you, you Does that
1: read... make sense? is that, is that...
0: No, it, it does make sense. Um, and, you know, you're right. I think people are like actually paying a lot more attention to their health. And, and one of the themes that I've got running for um, the podcast for this season and, and pretty much beyond is, is building resiliency, right? You know, I did a great podcast on, a, I was a guest on another person's show and uh, we spoke about individual resiliency, but also community-based resiliency and, and, and resiliency as a population. And it is exciting to see people all of a sudden go, wow, you know, the data is in on vitamin D. I mean, 80% 80 of people... Um, who have been hospitalised with COVID have been deficient um, in vitamin D, ninety percent deficient in vitamin C. I mean, undetectable levels. And you know, you're starting to see herbs like astragalus and licorice and all these cool things that you know I've, I've known about them for a long time, but a lot of people have not known about them at all. And so I do find that there is a preventative aspect as well. Um, but just coming back to the media for a minute, you know, this and maybe it's just me being being cynical or I, I don't know. What the right word is but you know i I kind of like wonder if there's another motive behind it all as well with the media you you know is it the media really just trying to put out a story so that they can get more clicks or is there something a bit more sinister that's going on and and, you know is is, is there someone behind that that's actually pulling the strings um because a lot of people are really asking those questions as well you know um left-leaning media aligned with left-leaning political parties and vice versa you know with with the rights but i don't know if you do you have any comments on that
1: yeah, it comes back to the money again, right? It's about profits. And we're not in the 60s and 70s when the media was curious, right? We don't have curious, good ethical journalism anymore, really, except for the independent sector and maybe some of the really you know, strong, strong ethical journalists. So it's a business. And these are huge corporations. Like one company that owns the National Enquirer, they're a management group, something management, asset management in New Jersey. They own the National Enquirer. Well, they just picked up 30 newspapers in a in a bankruptcy bailout. They picked up 30 nu- newspapers.
0: All right. So um, I want to just move us along a little bit. We had a bit of a glitch there um, tech-wise, which which is fine. It happens. Um, But uh, just to kind of bring us into what's going on right now. And, you know, I think, um, again, if if people want to learn about other stuff, like whether it's testing, whether it's media, whether it's the politics side of things, um, I kind of want to skirt around that a little bit. And I want to move us straight on to the action items because I think one thing that really drew me to you was just your the way that you've um, really come at this and launched yourself into the public space. But you've really rallied a lot of people around you. And I feel like you've given people a voice. You've really empowered people. Because as far as I can see, you know, there's so many people that are afraid you know and, and rightfully so like this is an unprecedented time we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes for for most people that are alive here and um, you know it's it's quite a scary thing to just walk into a store and not have your mask on and now you've got to confront someone or the manager's got to confront you and you know now you want you don't want to avoid you want to avoid confrontation because perhaps you live in a small town and the list keeps on going with excuses but one thing I've noticed about you and a couple of other warriors in the space is you've just been so fearless with the way that you've approached this and you've done it with a lot of grace and a lot of calmness which I also admire Um, and just seeing how you've empowered other people. So perhaps talk to us a little bit about some of the strategies and the initiatives that you've used. Um, You know, I've obviously been paying attention to that online, and uh, I find that they're quite easy to kind of implement. But uh, one of the things you've also been doing is going after um, the actual companies and the corporations, right? So I'll just hand over the mic to you and kind of see where you want to start, and uh, we'll go from there.
1: Well, for me, because... I've always known that this was crime. So that's how I approach it, right? It wasn't about figuring out statistics and death and stuff like that. I don't know anything about that because I knew that this was crime. And I knew that my personal life and my children's future was really only going to be paid in educating large numbers of people because that's how societies work. Our whole life was shut down. We lost everything. So I had to figure out schooling. I had to figure out employment. I had to figure out everything. A lot of people haven't lost a job, a lot of people haven't lost money, they've made more money, say. So I was forced to come up with solutions and actions, and I realized that people were listening to me. And I've also been doing this long enough to know that the only goal is winning. The only goal of activism is just sitting around talking about it on social media for hours. Don't waste your time doing that figure out how to solve your problem and then teach other people. That's really where, um, you know, security numbers comes in. And I've been involved in some big issues like wars in Africa and stuff. So it's the same thing. So I, I was already, ironically, I was already trying to build a brand called the justice for women that I started last year after being possibly threatened to be jailed, and I was like, I think moms are going to want to know about this. They're going to want to know about laws that are injurious and politicians and public health officials that are trying to punish and torture and control us. I think women want to know that. I was quite naive. And so I started making videos and t-shirts and talking about it, and then that's when corona hit. And so for me, it was just a matter of ramping it up and thinking, okay, how can I do this en masse, how can I turn this into a, a snowball, into an avalanche, into a world movement? That's what I thought. Because world, I don't want to just a free Vancouver in my neighborhood. I had a plan to make a television show in Africa, so I want to free Africa so I can make my show. And I started seeing people behaving in a way, and maybe I was even like this in the beginning because when your human rights are violated, it's it's so awful that you do fight back. That's a natural circumstance. And I saw people behaving poorly and then losing as a result of it. And I thought, okay, it's all about composure and grace, and it's only about winning. So what do you got to do to win? You've got to be smarter. You've got to be faster. You've got to be able to negotiate. You've got to be able to win the deal if you look at it from a business standpoint. So those are the basics of what I teach. And I'm learning so quickly every day because every person that comes to me has a new example you know a, a teenager called me who's been asked to not come back to her care home to work so i'm like okay how do care homes work how does the ministry of health work so my brain my learning has been on overdrive for five months and because i'm a tv producer and the photography and the branding and stuff i thought i can teach this and that will help us all so i stepped into the role of educating others and i focus on moms because for a very specific reason I worked in advertising for many years. I made commercials for pharmaceutical companies, Coca-Cola, General Motors, like the biggest brands in the world. And I learned from them that in the mother's wallet and they they target mothers for that reason, we control 80% of all household spend parents but it's always the mom the wife who's saying oh we're gonna it's gonna be blue darling i hope you don't mind put the fridge over there you know i found we're going on a holiday i booked the flights it's always the mom right so i picked her for a reason because i knew that the message would travel faster and farther if i told it to women and mothers
0: Hmm. do you feel like um the your audience is is mostly women that are rallying around you right now
1: um, I think so. Yeah, I hear from a lot of them. And they're the sharers. They're the big sharers. They, they run social media, right? Women run social media. So they're there. Um, but I, I try not to be exclusive. But it's also a niche strategy. You know, when you're when you're focusing on a demographic, you can penetrate it more if you speak to it more. So I also and this is kind of a funny story. Sometimes when I don't focus on moms, I, <laughs> I've been asked to um, go on dates and media I don't want any of that so <laughs> I think with the women I find there's a little less drama with the women as well and I know the mothers I know what their issues are because I'm the mother and they're always thinking about their children.
0: Right, so um what's going on currently in uh, Vancouver right now? um I know that there's movements all over the country i mean all over the world for that matter, um but things are really heating up right now um and I feel like there's you know one a couple of your mantras that I've really latched onto uh, the the one is really civil disobedience right so um, perhaps you can elaborate on that because I feel like there is a lot of civil disobedience going on right now. And uh, maybe share like, what, what is that uh, for people who might not understand what that is and uh, what's the best way to approach that?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, this is maybe a new idea for Canadians, right? You will understand this coming from South Africa, but we've never really had to fight for our freedoms before. And some societies very much champion this idea that it's, you're supposed to be in the streets it's your duty to question corruption. That That's just a, a lifestyle, it's part of a societal belief. So people who have grown up in South American countries or Eastern Europe, it's a very big part of growing up and, and what they speak about all about that, right? You, there's always a conversation about civil, civil disobedience. But this is new for ca- Canadians, I think. And Canadians are also a bit of the mindset of, well, Um, it's not good. It's, it. you don't want to be seen badly by causing trouble or speaking on a megaphone. Like I think a lot of my friends would say this about me, my old friends, my old and dear friends from the West, you know, affluent side of Vancouver. I can't believe she's doing that. I can't believe she would be seen to be doing that. And I've even had close friends say, I wish I could do what you do, but I'm, I'm too afraid to be seen doing that. And I get that. Right. I get it's like, be embarrassed. You don't want to be ashamed. But the flip side is, if you don't do that, then you are a sitting duck. So I know a lot about activism because I've studied it for years. So I try and teach people all the different tactics because one thing may work for somebody like you. Social media or media works for you because you're in a small town. Other people, other tools work. So things like boycott, strike, direct action, um, letter writing, Um divestment you know there's so many different kinds of tools and i can tell right away when i'm speaking to someone or speaking in a group or something if a group picks up on something and they're like i'm going to do that i could do that because it's like a toolbox there's so many tools in the toolbox to use and i just really try and explain it all and make people feel that's a world that they belong in and they can make it authentic and unique to themselves and that this is something that is here to stay To change Canadian society to be way more alert to the fact that our country is under siege and could be for the next 10 or 20 years.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like Canadians as a general culture, you know, I've lived here for 17 years now, um, going on 18 years. So I'm pretty much immersed in Canadian culture as much as I'm South African. And I totally hear what you're saying in South Africa, if things aren't working, you know, people get out in the streets and they start breaking stuff, you know, it's, it gets a little crazy there. It still is crazy there, but do you feel like Canadians are generally too complacent in a way? And, and you know, the, the classic Canadian, uh, um, archetype or stereotype, if you will, is just the really ultra nice, you know, um, ultra polite uh, person, you know, And, and I think that that stereotype exists for a reason, because Canadians are like that. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But in a situation like this, you know, is that a bad thing? And and is, is that, you know, because I feel like there's not a whole lot of traction um, happening out there, you know, outside of our circles anyway. Um, I, I feel like it's starting to happen. But if you look at what's going on in Europe now, I mean, the last, I think one of the last marches, you know, 1.3 million people um, out in Berlin, you know, like that's a lot of people. And you've got hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. And here, that's just not happening at all, you know.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of unique things that are kind of more structural. So we have a massive land base. So we have what half the population of Germany in a country that's 25 times the size. (laughs)
0: So
1: it's hard to get a couple hundred thousand people out, right? Um, The other thing, too, I think that is people generally don't get involved with civil disobedience or justice or activism unless they have personally lost something. Mm, good and, point. Yeah, they, that's when they change. They they become an activist because they face the injustice, right? Your car gets hit, you get robbed or whatever, and you realize, oh, my God, and you have to do something about it. So that's a basic rule. In in B.C., we have a history of highly organized financial crime happening in collusion with our government for decades. It's always mm. been like this in Vancouver and B.C. Um, the older generations talk about it and laugh about it. We had cartoonists joking about it in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid. So this has always been a part of our culture, but the average person hasn't lost that much as a result Mm -hmm. of it. So they didn't have to fight for anything. You still had a great house, you could still make money. The corruption was going on, the financial corruption in the government, but nobody had anything to lose like we are now. Now people are like, wow, like half the stores are gone. Not just 2%, but half of them are gone. More family members, stuff like that. The other thing that's structural is you have to look at what the people in the society are made up of. And I think in BC, we could have up to 30%, definitely 25%, but I think it might be 30% of people who are employed by our government.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's huge.
1: Right? So that 30% hasn't been hard hit. They're not going to challenge the government. so. That's to our disadvantage, where if you go to another province or another kind of country like that is a very small government, you get more resistance because the the pain would be more. And in Victoria, our capital, which sadly is on the island, you have to travel by a ferry to get to our provincial capital. Probably 60 percent of the people there work for the government. So they're pretty quiet over there. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think I want to add to that point as well. You know, a lot of people have questioned why are, you know, we should listen to the doctors, we should listen to the scientists and the health professionals and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that anyone who's a regulated professional so they're being muzzled right now. You know, they, they, when you speak to doctors, when you speak to scientists off the record, if you just speak to them like we're talking right now, um, they will tell you the jig is up and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up. You know, it doesn't make sense. The, the approach that we're taking, the science is not making sense. Um, I'm not going to talk about vaccines on this particular show, um, but that's not really making a whole lot of sense either. But unfortunately, they're, the, the regulatory bodies, the regulating agencies are muzzling them. You know, this includes naturopaths, it includes chiropractors, it includes doctors, and so forth. So I think when you kind of tack that together with the people that are working for the government, you probably have find out that you got a large number of people that are actually being, you know, passively silenced in a way. Um, you know, in w- w- whichever way you want to frame that. And um, yeah, so I, th- I think you raise a couple of good points um, there. You know.
1: Yeah, and an interesting part of that segment, and again, there's so many similarities from you being South Africa. One of the most important things that some of the more experienced or educated activists have to start figuring out quickly is how can we create a scenario where there is amnesty So that's what we need to focus on now, because a lot of the people who were complicit, not intentionally trying to cause harm, but they ended up being complicit because they were silent. They're going to remain silent because now they're going to look really bad. And so uh, Harvey Weinstein is a perfect example of this. All these other people in Hollywood who never exposed Harvey because people were like, well, why didn't you mention this 10 years ago? Right. So they are complicit and we could do something like that. I don't know if Canadians are going to get their brain around it the way South Africa did with your truth and reconciliation commission. And we set up a a social landscape where people can be given amnesty to speak and expose the corruption and they won't be persecuted for it. And I'm not talking about big high level government officials, but just GPs and doctors, you know, we, maybe we could create a way for them to come out and they won't be attacked. Because that's also keeping a lot of people in, the, in this world of silence is the lack of amnesty that's available right now
0: yeah and you know i mean i think you know i've said this for many months now um i feel like in different in different aspects we were painting ourselves into a corner here um all the time you know (laughs) um whether you want to talk about the lockdowns and trying to flatten the curve and get rid of the virus and all this other stuff it's like at some point you have to return back to normal society and normal living it's not going away um so you know when are we going to do that well the approach that we're taking right now is never you're never going to get back to it because as soon as you open society back up, the cases, air quotes, go back up and everything goes back to, to that, you know. So, um, but I think, uh, you know, when you talk about health professionals and doctors and scientists and whatnot, you know, I, I, I do sympathize with them in many ways because they are also at risk of losing their jobs and their livelihoods if they speak out, you know, M- much like uh, someone else who just has a brick and mortar coffee shop or, you know, whatever, um, but but uh, I want to come back to uh, the first part of your, your answer there, because I think it's an interesting one to linger on, is do you feel that people are now, as we're 10 months in here, do you feel like now people are got get starting to get a sense that... There is a real tangible loss that's being felt. Because I feel like the first lockdown didn't really hit home for a lot of people. They were like, oh, well, it's temporary. We got savings. We can ride it out. You know, the government's there with the forty thousand dollar check to tide you over, blah, blah, blah. And now I think a lot of people are starting to go, well, hang on a second. Like we're not going to be able to weather. The, the the next round here so do you feel like that might be the tipping point like it's is that gonna really get us over that hump where we might see lots more people in the street
1: well <laughs> I, I look at things in real practical terms too canada is a bit of a predicament now because it's really cold and wet and dark and generally live people will live a more quiet isolated life through the winter that's just life in the north And so I was joking with my husband the other day. I was like, okay, how many people are still going to be wearing masks next June? Are they going to go to the beach? Like, okay, it's fine now. It's dark. You go home. You got your groceries, whatever. You just, and I think it's going to be interesting to see in Canada when the warm weather starts to come again after the winter. If people fight furiously to get things back to normal again, get outside, get the barbecues, the beaches, the patios, how much they fight for that purely because we have such dramatic Changes in our lifestyles two or three times a year as Canadians. It's not like we're living in Florida or something, right? Where it's even. Yeah. So I think that's a part of it. But the biggest piece, and you know this, is that we're constantly trying to chip away at is that the media is lying to everybody. And that's the biggest piece we have to solve because if that that just flipped and that's the Harvey Weinstein thing, right? The media just turned on him in the course of a few weeks and he was a a sitting duck and the guy was all the charges, in jail, everything because the media turned on him. So I'm always trying to figure out that part. If we can flip the media, then we get everybody back on our team because the people who are accepting this and going along with it and making it worse for us just as a result... Um, they don't know they're being lied to. They haven't seen the shock value the way you and I know. So that could change in a moment. If we had a couple of media whistleblowers, oh, that would be fantastic. If things like the Adamson barbecue blow up, that could inspire more people to do that. We could truly have revolution. Um, Or one part of Canada more than the other. Like we don't have a real lockdown here and we're playing cat and mouse with the government. We're onto them all the time, constantly. And they know it. And we're going we're doing Supreme Court work and we will go after them. So our situation is really different than, say, Manitoba or maybe where you are. You guys may have some of the hardest stuff because you guys have all of the big head offices, the corporate head offices, all of the big money that's washing around. You know, Canada's run out of Ontario more. We've always been a bit sort of left out as B.C., but that, yeah, we're, we're. None of the people I spend my time with, I think any of this is remotely true or, or honest. I've, I've lost, I haven't lost friends, but it's the society has become segmented, right? I, I exist in the freedom silo and other people exist in that. So I don't know. It's a day, it's a day to day thing. Who knows how long this is going to go over? Who knows what is coming next? Are we going to be literally seeing food shortages and quarantine camps? Like, is that going to happen in B.C.? we can, we should be prepared for it, but we can't say that it's going to happen because we don't know. We can really only go one day at a time. I did see three guys wearing military uniforms in my local Tim Hortons and that doesn't normally happen. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, obviously obviously we, we are in such a unique situation here. I mean, it, it truly is unprecedented. Um, you know, certainly we've never seen anything like this in Canada before, um, for, for a few generations for that matter. Um, So uh, there was a couple of things that I wanted to to touch on and just circle back to what are some of the actual action items that you've done? Because I think you've done a great job at energizing people, Um, you know, not just getting up there with a microphone and shouting the odds and whatnot. You've actually, you know, through your Facebook lives um, and and that sort of thing, I've noticed that you've really got people to sort of go, okay, great. Like this is what I'm doing right now. Right. So I'm here at this store and this is what the altercation has been. This is how I'm handling it. So I don't know if you want to maybe pick a, a few highlights or a few key strategies that you've implemented?
1: Okay, I, I'll give you a couple of reasons. And I don't go seeking these things. I'm not a person that's looking for the drama, right? I just refuse not to, to change my life. So I walked into the Arc'teryx outdoor clothing store yesterday, which is like North Face. It's like a beast okay. brand like North Face, right? Very sexy store, awesome colors. I'm always looking at collections of stuff because I'm a designer. And um, sure enough, I was told to wear a mask, asked to leave the store, and then I was threatened to have the police called. So I'm like, okay, this is a new piece. Like, how does this work? How does the police work? How are they going to legally do this? What would happen to me? I want to know the answer to all this so I can explain it to people. And I knew that it was unlawful, and I knew it probably wouldn't happen because I wasn't going to be in the store long enough to, for the police to arrive. Like, they have far better things to be doing. And they all know me because I started the movement, and there's, there was 30 of them across the street, ironically, because it was right after a march. So I went along with this guy, went to his desk and I said, okay, you're going to call the police. Okay. I have to write all this down. Fine. And I was genuinely curious to understand the relationship that a police force that the public pays for is allowed to do the dirty work for a multinational corporation. Cause this is a big corporation that's listed on the Hong Kong stock exchange now okay. to enforce a policy that is unlawful, based on an order that is actually voluntary and based on fraudulent science. Like that's the same yeah. pattern everywhere we go. And I was like, I wonder if this is how this is all going to work. So I said to the guy, listen, I'm going to leave now. I'm done shopping and don't waste your time with the police, but I need to know the name of your head lawyer because I need to con- uh, I need to contact them. I need to answer this problem. Why you feel you have the authority to, and what are they? What are you expecting the police going to do to me? Like slap me around? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> where, where does this rough company, you up? <laughs> yeah, where does this company feel they have the right to threaten a member of the public that doesn't do something that somebody else is doing? Doing me to do. It was also weird. So I try and take all the little pieces apart like a jigsaw puzzle. So that's one example of how you could figure out the system that is in a private company that you've walked into. Another one that I successfully helped turn over was city council was about to force mask 700,000 Vancouverites. And they had put it in the newspaper, so we were able to advocate as the public should always be allowed to do before, most, well, motions are put into place in municipal law and city hall and say yes or no, as if they were gonna, you know, um, um, increase the prices of your, have to allow the public to participate. So we organized and I got everybody organized and we participated and I got speakers on the phone and like 300 of us got involved. I was the one that kind of put the flag up first, but because I'm always looking for the legal action and we we got it turned down. They've, we got them to vote no. So that happened quite quickly, but it was a pretty sophisticated move because it was actually influencing municipal law. We kind of got it. We bid it right on time. And then I would say, thirdly, the last example now is, uh, like I said earlier, a 19-year-old who's in an employment situation. And that's something I don't really understand because I don't have an employer. And she's going to walk me through her legal circumstances, and I'll be giving her tools and resources. I'll help her uh, raise some money if she wants. Another one is a friend of mine named Mac Parhar, who was, I guess, yeah, he was arrested after entering Canada and not quarantining. So we do have an act called the Quarantine Act. It's a real act, but um, the a law firm arrested because he didn't do it based on a fraudulent pandemic is is the story. So he was arrested and hauled off. His family wasn't even told that he was in jail for days. It's all really, really oh, bad wow. and dirty. Yeah, okay. it was really, really dirty. So he's fighting it using common law in the court system. And I helped him raise some money, which is one thing I love doing, because you always need money when you're fighting corruption. And his story is yet to be determined. So whatever they come back to him with, and hopefully they're just gonna drop the charges or they're actually going to try and charge him with uh, breaking the Quarantine Act. What are they going to be using? Like, we all need to look at that document. Who produced it? What was the charge? What was it based on? So we can all learn, you know, for the future. So that's why I call it direct legal action. I kind of made this model up. I used to be involved with um, animal rights activists, and they use that. And a lot of the old black activists in the 60s and 70s, direct action, you know, it's a common phrase. So I kind of put this legal bit in there and it's just for families and moms and regular people to do direct legal action. I've helped hundreds of people. We overturned the chiropractic forced masking in 24 hours because we exposed a very corrupt document that was sent out. I'm constantly contacted by whistleblowers. So I try and sift through stuff and think, okay, that's new. That's a priority. That one could help thousands of people. And then I just try and tell that story in a way that will engage others. That's the real power. What the journalists should be doing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I find that um, very inspiring and, and it's, uh, you, you know, there's a couple of things I want to um, bring up here that kind of rang some bells for me. The first one is, um, I, I think that everyone, and, and when I say everyone, I mean everyone, I think including the cops, I think including the enforcement agencies, I don't think anyone really knows what the actual consequences are if you don't comply. You know, and, and it's it's just like, you know, if, if everyone doesn't comply, what are they going to do? Put everyone in jail? Or to, to and to follow that, um, you know, you, you, you brought it up a couple of times. I think if it actually has to go to court, you then have to wonder to yourself, like, in a court of law, okay, you can say that you broke a rule, but broke a rule based on what? Right. And so now if it's a question of, well, we have to dig up the science, right? So if you got tested and you were tested positive, well, was that test actually accurate? Um, Have they isolated and purified the virus here in Canada? Because through Freedom of Information Act, um, Health Canada has said, no, they haven't. So there's all of these things that kind of are sitting behind the veil that most people are not thinking of. They're just kind of thinking of, well, if I don't have a mask on or if I don't do whatever, then they're going to call the cops and the cops are going to arrest me and throw me in jail and then I got problems. But I don't think anyone's really thinking it through the way that you're thinking it through. And I, I love the idea of, um, of actually bringing in the legal side of things because I don't know. I mean, I don't know much about law. Um, I studied a year of it when I was 18, but I don't remember anything. And uh, I just wondered to myself, like, would these types of cases actually hold water in, in a court of law. Uh, I don't know if you have any, um, any insight on that.
1: Well, they would waste, most of them would waste the time of the courts for sure. And they don't make sense. And they're heading that way because crimes are being committed. When things happen lawfully, if this had actually been a real pandemic, none of this would have happened because most people would have understood that we needed to do things quite seriously. So the big pieces, and I work with probably two or three different types of pretty big legal teams now in different countries, The big piece, as everybody is saying, is the only thing we ever really needed to do, and it wouldn't have worked until the last three or four months, is one, prove that the emergency orders were unlawful and based on nothing. That would have solved all of these problems. And the other one, I think, and other people don't necessarily agree, but we have to rebuild and disempower the public health authorities. They've been given Mm -hmm. way too much power over our lives. They're not even elected. They're these random people. I think like some of them aren't even doctors. The woman, Dina Hinshaw in Alberta, I think she has a public health degree, but that is not certified doctor. Um, And that's the biggest piece I think we need. If Bonnie Henry, if our public health officer hadn't been blabbing her mouth on television for literally, what, 270 straight days, telling everybody how to live their life we wouldn't have so much economic destruction people would have generally in society like any kind of natural system people just generally kind of figure things out generally they they work hard, they feed their families, they go to bed, they don't cause problems. That's generally how societies work.
0: Yeah, most people actually just want to be left alone and carry on with their lives and, you know, enjoy their community, their family, their jobs, whatever. But I think, um, you know, this is why I actually opened up this podcast by sharing this, the Canadian statistics, right? Because the other thing that is really the elephant in the room is when we talk about executing emergency orders, um, no matter which province you're in or the federal government or whatever, but at a provincial level, which is where they're, actually implementing all of these emergency orders um i don't think anyone is very clear on what constitutes an emergency order like what are the criteria that need to be met to actually put that into action and i've read some of it i've read some of what you know because i don't think we've ever been in this situation so you know is there imminent threat to people's lives like are we you know are are we looking at mass deaths are people's lives truly endangered? And I think that in the beginning, no one knew what was going on, right? It was like, oh my gosh, there's this crazy virus that's happened. You know, everyone just stay at home. Okay, great. Like, yeah, let's stay at home. Like, I don't want to, you know, like put anyone's life in danger. No one really wants that. You know, everyone is, I think by, by nature, good, a good person, right? I like to believe that anyway. And so I think that um, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? So now we can look back and we can say, well, cool, you know, you're ramping up the testing and the cases are going up. The recovery rates are going up. The only thing that's staying low is the deaths. So how are we still executing 28 days later, another 28 days later, another 28 days later? How are we executing all of these orders, these emergency orders, based on what?
1: Well, yeah, and this, this, is, the big, this is the big global picture. And all these books have been you know, t- spoken about it, written about it for, God, a good 10 years or even 20 years. I think Christopher Hitchens is one of the thinkers. Yeah. That We now have a world where these corporations are more powerful than our governments. Yeah. And so we didn't have these kinds of problems five, 10, 20 years ago, because mostly the government still had the little bits of integrity left to it. And we mm. can see that kind of generally happening. And the police officers explained this to me when I started the March movement because I met with them a bunch of times. Now we have the corporations are dismantling our democratic institutions They are rebuilding them. You just look at the cover of Time magazine, The Great Reset. The courts are being rebuilt. The elected officials are being... Everything is the whole framework of what our society was built on that gave us mostly goodwill and mostly freedom and liberty is now being re-engineered to work in their favor. And that's why everybody's so confused because the rules are changing. And so I said to the cops, it was like our third or fourth march and somebody threatened me. And I said are you are you going to arrest me? Like I'm going to, i going to have the right to do this. And you know me, there's going to be 500 of us. Like, what are you actually going to do? Are you going to arrest me? Are you going to put me in a squad car? Are you going to take me to jail? I have to know because my husband's going to have to deal with the kids. Like, can you just tell me? And he goes, Sue, we are literally building the plane while we're flying it. It's in the air while we're building it. And I thought that's, that's the most perfect metaphor. And everybody needs to get their brain around that because the opportunity actually is we're going to rebuild it too. I'm involved with a group that is literally building a new world health organization and uh, one to compete. So forget fixing it. Right. Like we build a new one and it will be those people I think who are going to lead us in the future who start imagining and rebuilding the new framework of a better society that we want.
0: Yeah. Well, and I love that because I think that, um, you know, I've always said you you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools, right? Um, And trying to change the system by using the system is only going to get you so far at the end of the day. Um, Ultimately, we need a full strip down and um, a creating of a new type of society. And my concern, though, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, is when you start like digging into things like the Great Reset and the, the language around that, is they're using the same language that we're using right now, right? You know, the whole build back better and we want everyone to be equal and no, no person left behind and blah, blah, blah. So I feel like it's being cloaked in very colorful and very fancy language. But when you peel the veil back, um, what you see on the other side of it all is it's sort of like the, the worst aspects of capitalism and fascism that are being dressed up in the most romanticized version of capitalism, socialism, and so on. And and I just like, you know, the concern for me is I've, I feel like some people are just not going to clue into that um, because you're starting to see, you know, the, um, the SDGs as well, the, you know, sustainable development goals and all of this stuff being now baked into the framework. Um, I'm going to do a separate podcast and all of that stuff. There's a, a great woman, um, I forget her last name, but her first name is Allison. I've been following her online and she's like... She's about ten years ahead of all of us with all of this stuff, and, and really looking at how big tech is, um, big tech and corporations are really shaping the future here. And um, yeah, you know, so I think that the work you're doing is is so needed right now. And I do think that we have a part to play. I think, um, you know, I would love for people to feel more empowered um, by listening to this um, podcast. You know, and
1: that's what is i'll just say this quickly is that's why it's so important is that the the most valuable thing that we have in any society is hope and if you lose the hope like humans can survive anything right if you lose the hope then you're really a goner the whole society is a goner and they can call that poverty fatigue or compassion fatigue some societies are just not able to uplift themselves again because the people have given up you know the resilience is gone they've just been beaten down too much right And I would put our Indigenous people in that category, not maybe in the last five years, but they've really suffered that for decades, right, the beating down. And so when you go and fight and advocate, it fills you up in terms of your hope because you see what's possible. And that's the energy that propels us forward. That's the most important thing we have. And I guess finally, I don't know how much time you have, but I think if you want to talk about this, it's a pretty heavy word, but... We know that genocide has happened in Canada for almost 200 or more years, and I really believe, and I didn't think this in the beginning, but I believe this now, that that is what we are actually a witness to now, because there will be so many people who will be harmed and killed by these injected drugs that are coming. It's just the truth. It will happen. There's going to be collateral deaths, and that is genocide. And we only spoke about genocide for the first time, I think, two years ago. Trudeau mentioned it in the media of how we treated our Indigenous people with the murdered and missing women and girls tribunal. It was the very first time that genocide was used, it was used publicly. And that's what we are bearing witness to now, that we are being we are bearing witness to kind of a tech and corporate control that is leading to genocide. And it's very real in North America. And I don't think we should be afraid of that conversation. I I think we have to normalize that as fast as we can because it will make people sit up and pay attention.
0: Yeah. And I, I fully agree. I mean, look, I'm no stranger to controversy with regards to vaccines and slamming the you know pharmaceutical industries and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I'll, I won't get uh, too far into the weeds with regards to the vaccines and mandating of vaccines and whatnot. Um, people can go back and listen to previous shows if they want. And I'm going to be doing uh, more shows on that moving forward. But I think that um, you know when we talk about genocide, I think it's also important to know that that is one piece of the puzzle, you know this transhumanist agenda, um, w- whatever you want to believe on that, I think we 're still kind of feeling our way in the dark um, when it comes to that conversation is what does an mRNA vaccine look like? What exactly is it going to do to your body? like how does it work at the cellular level when it comes to changing your DNA and your coding? Um, how does that interact possibly with 5g networks and bio- biocapitalism and you know surveillance capitalism? I think that conversation is starting to come to the forefront now. But I think we also need to look at the genocide piece from a very real, tangible perspective right now, which is the systematic dismantling and collapsing of the economy. And the the vanishing middle class, uh, you know, businesses are just being destroyed. Livelihoods are being destroyed every single day. And I think that it's no secret that even long before the pandemic, so many people were living hand to mouth, you know, with maybe a month or two's uh, worth of savings in the bank and you know the question then becomes well we've seen suicides go up we've seen drug overdoses go up we've seen alcoholism go up we've seen domestic violence and abuse go up we've seen all of these things as collateral damage and no one i think it's going to be a long time before we tally that up to really see how what who was killed by the virus and then who was killed by everything else And I think that for a lot of people, they're still very much focused on the immediate threat, air quotes, which is the virus without actually looking at all of the other um, uh, effects that that are happening right now. So I think that, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm not afraid to speak about it, but um, yeah, it's not exactly, uh, you know, Sunday morning cup of coffee kind of conversation, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's where, I guess that's again, that's where like the education piece is so important that the more educated people are about issues the less afraid they become because it becomes normal conversation oh yeah i know about that i know about that and if if the more you know about something like injected biologics vaccines mm-hmm. right the less afraid you become because of, for, to talk about it because because you understand the issues more and there's a lot of other issues that things like regulatory and advertising and stuff that's fascinating legal issues around vaccines right some vaccines that might be good A good idea and others that aren't, right? You can actually have the real discussion because you're educated. So it's going to be so interesting to see which parts of which countries in which regions of the world will be the ones to survive this the best and to transform and to win again and to build back what I want, which is more natural health systems. To me, that's the goal that everyone should have in the world, right? From our ecosystems to our children's bodies, whatever. Where are the winners going to be, right? I don't think it's going to be Canada, and I hate saying that because I adore Canadians, but I don't see enough people fighting for the good stuff. and I'm trying to figure out, maybe you have some ideas, where are the winners going to be? You know, Copenhagen, maybe, what, what they just did. What, which parts yeah. of the world are we going to start to see the wins in? Because that may be the thing that inspires the others.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was actually, that was going to be my question. What do you foresee here in North America? Because I think that um, this is just me like really zooming right out to, you know, 10,000, maybe 100,000 feet. I actually think that the countries that are the least developed will actually withstand this much better.
1: Yeah, which, Why? Which, that's interesting. Why do you say
0: that? For what? Reason? Yeah, um, you know, if uh, take Africa for example, right? I mean, okay, aside from being an experimental playground for uh, everyone from GMOs and you know agricultural chemicals and pharmaceuticals and whatnot, you'll actually find that they actually have. Um, I feel like there's less to lose in a way. And I also, if you look at um, things like the actual impact, right, aside from people not having access to medications and the logistical side of things, which again is part of the collateral damage, you're actually seeing in Africa, they have some of the lowest rates of of, of COVID-related deaths, right? Again, I use air quotes all the time. So, um, you know, when you, when you put that against North American culture, which is so high tech and so dependent and reliant on the, the constant pushing forward of technology and innovation and all that sort of stuff. And consider how, you know, on average, like North Americans are, are some of the wealthiest people in the world. So we actually, um, on a very baseline level, we've got a lot more to lose than um, pe- people in other countries and more developing countries. Um, so again, I'm not looking at starvation. And and stuff like that, you know, food supply issues and whatnot. I'm just looking at, you know, maybe 50 years down the line, where you know, are we all living in Elon Musk's world where he's actually implanted AI into our brain and we're hardwired to our phones? Well, maybe people in Malawi are not going to be experiencing that, you know.
1: Well, I think that two things. One is um, it will be the cities that suffer the most. So
0: across all countries,
1: right? The urban, the high density controllable populations. And then, um, but as a friend of mine, who's a real kind of radical natural health leader, you know, completely alternative lifestyle, he said to me a few times, and he's right, is any system that is not natural in nature will cannibalize or destroy itself eventually. And I think that's what will happen here. And unfortunately, I think it's going to take a lot of Canada down. I think that Canada is just going to keep going down and down and down until there's nothing left. All of the good stuff, all of the, the money and the health and the prosperity and the, and the opportunities that these corporations want to stuck out of us, once they do, they'll just it's like District 9, right? They'll just spit it all out and there won't be anything left. Um, and so that's a process of attrition that's just natural systemic flow right that at some point they they won't have anything left to take from us and I think that's actually what started this in the very beginning in March I don't know if you remember this but around January it was like November December January my husband and I were watching TV which we don't do watching the news and very much and this news report came on at six o'clock in the evening saying most Canadians have so much debt that they're going to lose their house and their life is doomed. Like it was, it was kind of a shocking news report for you huh. or whatever. And we watched it and I was like, I can't believe they're letting this run on TV. It was very untypical. And then it ran again at seven o'clock, you know, it came on again. And I was like, wow, this is going to freak everybody out. It's going to freak the homeowners out. It's going to freak the banks out. And I think it ran one more time the next morning at six or 7am again, it was on that same cycle. And then it completely disappeared. It was gone. And I think of that moment all the time. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why we're experiencing this in Canada is our system, our, our economy was already bottoming out. And yeah. we it's just going to keep bottoming them out. I mean, how, what are these what are these companies going to get from us 10 years from now at this pace?
0: What's going to be? Biocapitalism, that's what it is. It's biocapitalism and surveillance capitalism. We are, our data is the new currency, right? That's where we're going with all of this. Um, I'll leave it at that because I don't know enough uh, more about it to fully articulate um, my my thoughts and understanding of it. But I think that, um, you know, it kind of ties in with what I was saying, right? First world and developed countries stand to lose more because we're actually, we've been running on systems that are wholly unsustainable any which way you want to cut it, whether you want to talk about our exploitation of natural resources, whether you want to talk about um, the financial instability. I mean, just take a look at house prices in Canada compared to the US as one example. I mean, completely overinflated. You know, here where I live, you will not find a house in a small town here for less than $600,000. You will not. It's almost impossible. And I know Vancouver like 10x from, from Toronto even, where the average house price is around $900,000 or a million dollars. You can literally go across the border to Buffalo and get yourself half an acre with a five-bedroom house for 250 grand or less. You know, so, so I think that what this is doing, and I've said this before, this is really bringing to the forefront um, sustainability in a different way. Um, and it's also getting us to question the way that we're living right? As, as far as I can see, like, are we living within a natural cycle? Are we line- Are we living in a linear system? Or are we living in a circular cyclical system? And we're not. Um, the question is, you know, how much does it have to break down? And how many people have to wake up to see what's going on? And then what's the road forward uh, from there? And, and I don't have an answer for that. I mean, that's a huge existential question.
1: <laughs> the, the shame is that we all have to actually share the same planet you know like if we if there was like hundreds and hundreds of planets and we can all just jump to the next one and get get away from these psychopaths but we can't like right? we're all trapped on planet earth so well i think that the parts of the world who rise up and who figure this out and who mobilize mm-hmm. that's where we will see the progress and so we're, yeah. we're thinking as a family too i'm like i don't know about staying in canada long term to be honest with you we have a sort of a life and whatever business in africa so we're fine in a few places or even england but um, we, we like being in different places in the world. I don't have to think in Canada, but I want to be living around the people who are fighting back and changing because not only is it safer, it's just way more fun. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm done with all this crap. Like, the not very much Vancouver's like this. I think everybody's kind of done. Even the people that own the stores, they're yeah. rolling their eyes like, all oh, right, nobody's asking for masks. Like, everybody yeah. is laughing at the government now, I think. So we have to... We have to use that, that groundswell of, can't we just have our life back and turn it on its cheek? Because these things can cha- change quite quickly. You know, there's always a possibility that the injustice will flip, like the Harvey Weinstein thing, and we can flip it. Yeah. Head, so we'll see. But um, we've got so many different circumstances across Canada. There's probably five different kind of regions struggling in different ways, from B.C. up to the Maritimes, to and everybody's handling it differently because of our provincial lawmaking system, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I do like to have some hope and I want to end off on on that high note and and just, um, you know, I'm going to direct people to uh, your resources and tap them into the work that you're doing. Um, we've got listeners from all over the world that tune into the show. Um, last time I checked, I think it was 52 or 53 countries. Um, so we're oftentimes charting in all weird places. Um, hello, Latvia. Um, yeah. So like, you know, top podcast here and there or in the top 100 in different countries and then top 20 in different different countries so it's kind of cool so i hope that anyone who's listening to this wherever you are um, i just want you to be inspired to know that even though you might feel isolated or you might feel afraid or you might feel like you don't have a lot of people around you um you know all it takes is one or two people to kick the movement off and um you know to basically just say hey man we've had enough and to stand up and to uh, gracefully and ethically um you know stand your ground and to help other people and educate other people to say hey man let's rise up and and let's do this so um
1: and that's how it works one person at a time and helping others well i'll leave this i'll leave my part on this there's a a quote that the um the new world freedom alliance and the world doctors alliance you know the groups out of copenhagen and berlin loris cahill and heiko and that whole team and i'm working with dolores she said it's, it's kind of their new message is you get what you accept I think that's a really good way of living and with everybody thinking is you're going to get out of life what you accept. And freedoms, it's like people accept that for, say, money or jobs or relationships, you know, a relationship. You get what you accept. And that's how we all have to look at our human rights now is you're going to get the life that you choose to accept, whatever that means to you. And that's a very simple message that a lot of people, I think, could find hope in. Because the human spirit is so strong and our brains and our ability uh, are, are limitless that we can create whatever world we want if we fight for it.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, well, I am going to say thank you so much for your time and for your energy and for the awesome work that you're doing. I, I really appreciate it, and um, I hope that anyone else who's listening and watching this um, that they you know tap into what you're doing. I'm going to throw all of your links and resources and, and anything else you want to share with people. I'm going to put those right in the show notes um, underneath this episode. Um, this will also be on YouTube as well, so people can just click on those notes. And um, yeah. You know, I I think we'll wrap it up there. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Having me And good for you with such a successful broad reach. That's amazing. Thank you.
0: It's getting there. It's getting there. It's all organic. You know, I don't have any advertising. This is just me. It's a passion project and um, it's getting out there. And, you know, for those who have never tapped into the show before, um, you know, yes, we have a lot of the activist side of things going on with the show, um, but we're also very staunch advocates, you know, for natural health and natural healing. Um, I've been doing this um, in my career for almost 20 years now, and uh, I run a very successful clinic i coach and mentor um health professionals from all over the place i uh, work with supplement companies and, and all sorts of good stuff um so all about empowering people to live a healthier life um, to build resiliency natural immunity and not just natural immunity for you as an individual but also natural immunity for us as societies and communities and whatnot so um uh, yeah awesome all right thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, for those of you tuning in um, please remember that if you enjoyed the show you can share it with other people or you can simply subscribe leave us a review and uh, help us to continue to build the audience and get the word out there all right so thanks for tuning in and you have a beautiful day wherever you are